You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. When Cindy Lauper, Steven Schwartz, Bobby Lopez, these icons in the mm. business do something that you don't think is quite right, how do you tell them, you know what, this isn't so good? I'm well, sure it's come up. I'm sure they've yeah, all written comments. Of course. And, we've, I, look, and, and I've had knockdown dragouts with all of those people. That really? Just, yeah, I mean, of course. I mean, Give me an example of a fight. Cindy and I came to very, very strong words where I stormed out of a room. We were, we were actually recording the album of all things. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. You're listening to the Producers Perspective Podcast with your host, Tony Award winner, Ken Davenport. Hey everybody, it's Ken Davenport. In just a few moments, we're going to get to today's episode with Stephen Aremis, two-time Tony Award winning musical master. I mean, the guy has done it all and he's going to tell you about all things music, directing, arranging, orchestrating, as well as about the time he got a shout out from Lady Gaga. That is right, Lady Gaga. Uh, in the meantime, I wanted to ask you one question before we begin. Uh, are you following me on Instagram? Are you? Tell me the truth. So if you're not, go ahead and find me at Ken Davenport B-Way, at Ken Davenport B-Way, short for Broadway. Uh, and do me a favor, on your Instagram, turn on your post or story notifications to see what I'm up to. I've doubled down my Instagram postings as of late and my storytelling. Uh, so there's lots of cool stuff about what's happening on Broadway marketing trends. I'm, I'm doing that a lot lately, taking a, pictures of great ads that I see and not so great ads that I see so that you can learn about how to promote your stuff. Uh, and every once in a while, I'm going to throw in a, a photo of a, or a video of my kid. So it's worth it for that. At Ken Davenport B-Way, we'll see you on Instagram. And now on with the podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. 
Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Ken Davenport. This is the Producer's Perspective Podcast. This is episode 180, which means if you binge listen to all the podcasts we have, it would take you more than a full week. So that's a challenge. Go out and try that this week. Uh, Don't tell your boss I told you. Uh, And today on the podcast, I'm very excited. He's actually one of the busiest creative folks we have on Broadway these days. And I can testify to that because it's taken a very long time to get him on this podcast. I've been after him for months, uh, but well worth the wait. Please welcome to the podcast two-time Tony Award winner, Mr. Stephen Aremus. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you. So happy to be here. So Stephen is a musical guru for Broadway shows, for telecasts and movies, as we'll talk about. Uh, he's been an arranger, a musical director, a supervisor, conductor, and orchestrator, which is what won him those couple of Tonys for Kinky Boots and Book of Mormon. A few other little shows he's worked on that you've probably never heard of before, Frozen, (laughs) Wicked, Avenue Q, a ton more. Just came back from doing the Rent telecast on television. Uh, He also does a lot in the pop world. Is this true? We're going to start with this big question. Mm -hmm. Is it true that Lady Gaga gave you a shout-out in a concert? She did, yeah. Let's start just there. How does that... How do you go from Stephen Aremus? Where are you from? Livingston, New Jersey. Livingston, New Jersey. And recently, you in Vegas? Is that right? Yeah, I was in Vegas. Uh, I follow you on Instagram, obviously, oh, and yeah. all of you out there should follow him as well. <laughs> He's got a gorgeous little girl. Uh, so she gave you a shout out. Yeah. What did she say exactly? The, the whole thing was I, I had told her that I was coming to see the show, and we were in Vegas with, a, with some friends. And I got a text back from her manager saying, oh, you know, she's not doing any meet and greets because it's a crazy night, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't realize how crazy because when we got to that point in the show, she was, she started introducing the people that were in the audience. She's just like, and Pink is here. Pink was sitting in front of us. Like literally, I was like, oh, and there's Pink, you know, and Christina Aguilera is here and Mark Ronson's here. And like literally started like naming all these people. And I was like, holy cow. I'm like, well, no wonder she's not having us backstage. And then she said my name and the woman next to me was filming the whole thing. And I was like, I'm going to need that. Thanks. Um, but yeah, it was really kind of her. It was really, really sweet. That oh, you we, borrowed that, her footage. Yeah, I did. I totally took the footage because so I was like, well, I need to, you know, commemorate this. It's awesome that, you know, but no, she's, she's an incredibly generous collaborator and an incredible person. And I've gotten the opportunity to work with her a few times. So tell time. us about that. So what did you work with her on? The first thing was, uh, the Sound of Music medley that she did on the Oscars. That year I was the music director for the Academy Awards, the whole show. And so Craig and Neil produced, that was the last year that they produced the Oscars. And she wanted to do this, a very traditional, very, you know, when, when I met with her, she was like, I don't want it to be a, a mashup or whatever the kids are doing today. And she's like, I wanted to do a real medley with the full orchestra and all of that. And I said, okay, let's do it. And we met a few times and started getting, going through it. And then she was like, I don't have it in my voice yet, but I will. And I'm going to sing it in Julie Andrews key. And I said, okay. I said, I'm, I feel great about that, but then you have to belt the shit out of Climb Every Mountain at the end. And she said, okay. And that was how, and that was what we ended up with, um, which was really amazing. And it was, and that was one of the first moments that people were like, oh, she's really, you know, she can really 
really sing, and that's amazing. Then the beginning of her Tony Bennett collaborations and all that stuff, so people were really appreciating her for more than just the pop stuff, which was great. And then after that, she had written a song with Diane Warren for a film, a really affecting documentary called The Hunting Ground that came out a few years back and she she was nominated for an Oscar for that so I had done a big string arrangement for for, for that song um, that we had recorded and then um, she came back to me at, uh, shortly after that and said <clears throat> and said you know here's this song from A Star Is Born and it's the last song in the sh- in the film and she said I didn't know it was going to be the last song in the film I didn't know it was going to make the film um, and she said we can never do another another string arrangement. I said, sure. So I did this little demo and then I didn't hear back from anyone. And then I, and then they called me and said, so can we have the music? They're like, yeah, we're filming it tomorrow. I had to call her and be like, so, um, are you cool with, with the arrangement? She goes, oh yeah, it's so beautiful. Thank you so much. It's, 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 it's great. So let's, you know, we're going to do this. And they had like live strings playing on camera. So they wanted to make sure that they were playing the actual notes that I wrote. So I had to like, yeah, I had to put, put this all together and I didn't know what key they were going to end up in. And so I had to like do it three times and they filmed it. And then I was like, well, I hope it makes the film. You never know. You know what I mean? It could be end up on the cutting room floor. And then it turned out to be the end of the film that, you know, was so beautiful. So it was a real honor and a thrill. So we have certainly started in reverse at the after. So we've talked about Mm -hmm. a shout out from Lady Gaga, Mm -hmm. a big feature film, Mm -hmm. uh, and also the Academy Awards. So mm-hmm. now okay. we know what you've become. <laughs> um, let's go. Let's scroll way back to the beginning. So, what did you start playing piano in the womb? I mean, where did this? I started from? when I was uh, about f- uh, five years old. I was obsessed with Barry Manilow. Like I, I, I was as a little you kid. And me both. I, I mean, and and you know, it was the seventies. So I was, I was really, uh, I, I loved Barry Manilow. I thought that he, I just loved his songs. I loved that he played the piano and sang. And so I. Um, I, when I was five years old, I said to my parents, I want to, you know, I'd love to play the piano. So they got me a piano and I started taking piano lessons. And, and even though I studied classically and all that stuff up to college, I was always playing like I had my, my best friend up the street, um, Amy Kessler, who now lives up in Canada. She's, she like used to sing all of the show tunes and I would, uh, you know, we'd pour through like the, you know, the Annie vocal selections and the chorus line vocal selections. And then, you know, and, and we would just sing all the songs and I started playing for her at voice lessons. And so by the time I was in about sixth grade, I was always accompanying singers. By the time I was in seventh grade, I was like the principal pianist for this, this voice teacher in town and I would just play everything. So I got to pl- play everything from like classical to, you know, pop music and Broadway and everything in between. I had to transpose on site. I had to like learn how to do all that stuff. So I got very, facile at all that stuff and I just loved it I always loved that 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 dance between you know as an accompanist or a music director like of just supporting the singer and 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 being there it was never about like the spotlight for me in any way you know what I mean it was always just a really great fun thing to make music with someone and have that experience so um yeah and then I, I I did that and I ended up going to Berklee College of Music in Boston I was a film scoring major, largely because I'm I'm goal oriented. Like I needed a goal oriented major. I couldn't be just you know, like come study jazz piano or something. I, I did. I studied a lot of different things, but I wanted something that had like a cumulative kind of goal to the end of it, and it was really cool. I loved it. I had a great. What was time. the goal to score films? Yeah, I mean, just like learn all learn all about how they 
do, do all that stuff, which of course is now completely different because that was the beginning of, you know, we had the little Macintosh computers with the, with the floppy drives. Uh, so it was the beginning of the technology and everything behind it, but it was, it was amazing. It, I mean, I think that, that, that what it provided for me and what I got excited about was a lot of what I do now, which is, you know, getting to write my own stuff, arrange my own stuff and conduct my own stuff to the screen and, and all and whatnot. I got to put, put my own little ensembles together for the film scoring sessions and whatnot. And, and I was able to, you know, have that live element, which was always what I found so exciting and refreshing when I started doing shows, like what, I mean, whether it was the dinner theaters and the community theaters and all that stuff in New Jersey and all the way up to, you know, to getting to still do that, which I'm so lucky. <laughs> When you so when you graduated, so you're a film scoring major, and mm-hmm. obviously you have incredible musical gifts and talents that you've spent years training. You could have gone any way, I would imagine, in the music industry. Mm-hmm. Why theater? Well, that was. I mean, I always loved theater. I mean, I was. I, I you know, we. I, I grew up in Livingston, New Jersey, as I said, like you know, thirty minutes outside of the city. So. The city, see, I'm a Jersey kid. Uh, it's thirty minutes outside of New York City, so I got to. Uh, my, my parents took us in to to see Broadway shows. Usually, at least once a year, maybe twice a year. It depends how they did that year. But it was it was largely like around Easter and stuff. You know, it started in like the late seventies. Like I saw Sarah Jessica Parker as Annie in nineteen seventy nine. Went to see a chorus line. That year, I mean, I was like eight years old. It was crazy, and uh, I didn't understand half of it, but I loved it. I loved every note of that score. Um, I went to see Barnum, you know, the original Barnum with Glenn Close uh, and Jim Dale. I, so there was so many, you know, I just have so many amazing memories of theater as a kid, and it was always such a magical, exciting thing. So even in high school and whatnot, like, okay, I was in a couple of shows. I was never meant to be. I, I was the, the devil in Damien because I was Applegate in Damien because my senior year. That was my swan song to acting. You're welcome, everyone. I retired. But it, it was terrible. But I always played for the shows, and I always... I just loved the that that thrill of, of starting a show that, you know, certainly as, as as an MD or as a as a musician of, like, when that red light goes out and just going, and you got to get to the end one way or another. It's just... It's like that, that adrenaline and that thrill of the live performance was something that was just so, so amazing. So... Flashing forward after after college, a girlfriend of mine had a, a he was doing a show at a dinner theater in New Jersey, and she was like, "They need a pianist." You know, it's like piano and drums for this production of Meet Me in St. Louis, and it's all these old people eating their steak. You know, Wait, what was the dinner theater? It was uh, Neil's New Yorker Dinner Theater. It was originally Neil's New Yorker. I think they, they then changed their name. They they tried to up it to like the class level to the uh, Evergreen Dinner Playhouse. Right. Well, Neil's New Yorker <clears throat> in New Jersey is always interesting. Neil's New Yorker in New Jersey, yes. That was a crazy, crazy time. So, um, and then I did a bunch of shows there and I was, you know, and I was doing like, uh, you know, so many different shows. Like I was doing community theater, you know, I was, I, I was doing, doing shows at the JCC in West Orange and, you know, doing Music Man there and, you know, music directing for, I, I did a production of, of Baby in, um, at, at the Livingston Community Players. And, um, it was, uh, it was, it was crazy. So I just, you know, I just started doing it and then, you know, one thing led to another and, it was not a goal for me. I wasn't like, I'm going to be a conductor on Broadway one day. I was just kind of like, this is fun. I really like this. I, love. I love to make music. I love 
this aspect of making music. I love to make this music happen and, and make this magic happen. And it really, really was such a thrill to be a part of that, you know, that, that drive and that adrenaline of the, of the live performance. There's really nothing like it. And what did you start by playing in the pits here in, on Broadway? No, no. So what was your first gig? My first, uh, my first opportunity, um, uh, as, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, like, I guess but the first big show that paid me any real money that wasn't in summer soccer or, or regional theater or community theater was, um, rent. I got a uh, rent in 1999. I uh, audition. I was, I was actually auditioning. I was learning the, to sub on Charlie Brown. Kim Grigsby was the MD. The amazing Kim Grigsby. And she, she said to me, she was like, you know what? Keller's looking for an MD for the tour of Rent. I don't know if you're interested. I'm like, yeah, I mean, I would love that. And I went and I met with Tim Weil and auditioned for him and I got the job and I went out for eight months. But that's, let me just actually say that this story, I just told this story the other night. This was, I can trace everything back to this, like everything that has happened since was this, this one, that one job, because what happened was I had, um, Andrew Lippa had, had gone to see this production of Jesus Christ Superstar that I did out in Nyack with Billy Porter and Emily Skinner. And it was this wild, like set it in South Africa. And it was like this whole crazy, amazingly creative that. version yeah. of the show that I was very proud of. And Billy was Jesus. And it was just like, extraordinary. Emily was Mary Magdalene. And Andrew came to see it, Andrew Lippa, and uh, and and that was when I first met him. And he was like, "Holy cow, this is incredible! What you guys have done!" And 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 he's like, "You know, I'm, I've written this show called The Wild Party, blah blah blah." And he handed me a cassette tape of it, <laughs> which was amazing. <laughs> That's how far back it is in the '90s. So I ended up um, through a series of events. I music directed a production of Andrew Lippa's Wild Party in Russia. So we did a concert version of The Wild Party with a bunch of Russian people and some Americans in a jazz club that is in St. Petersburg. That's been there since the twenties. It was just extraordinary. It was life changing stuff. And at the time they already had an MD for the wild part. So they didn't need me. And Andrew was like, Oh, well maybe you can be the associate on you know, the assistant music director, you know, on the workshop or something. Then I got rent. So I said, Sorry about it. I'm going to go. This is a huge hit show that I got to go do. And, um, and I was, and that was it. And then they passed me up for the job again because Manhattan Theater Club was going to produce the show. Rent happened. And in Boston, I was uh, told by the company manager after we opened that the producers wanted to meet me. So I was introduced to Jeffrey Seller and Kevin McCollum. And Jeffrey said to me, thank you so much. The show sounds amazing. I can't even believe how great, it, you know, what, what, whatever you've done is just extraordinary. And I had had, to be fair, I put a lot of new people into the show and I really kind of gotten the time to, to make it sound as great as I could make it. And that was that. Lippa called me two weeks later and said, so we did the workshop at the Wild Party and we're hiring a new MD. And I'm like, great, they're going to you know, pass me up again. He's like, we'd like you to be the MD. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah. He's like, but you should thank Jeffrey. And I said, why? And he said, because Manhattan theater club wouldn't hire you because you had no credits. And Jeffrey Seller went in and said, he, this is the, this is your MD. And he was a commercial producer of the wild. Party. So he went to bat for me when no one else would. And that was a product of the work that I had gotten to do. And I, I'm very 
proud and endlessly grateful for that. And then through the wild party, that's how I met Stephen Schwartz, who said, hey, I'm writing this show about these witches. And, and the rest, you know, and Robin Goodman, who produced, you know, Avenue Q and Tick, Tick, Boom. She hired me to do Tick, Tick, Boom. And, you know, all of this stuff just all kind of flowed from that period. And, and the wild party was my first music directing credit in New York. For that, I am endlessly grateful. I have a similar story that I can always trace it back to one first gig and it all come from that. So tell us, what does a music director do? I think it's one of those, everyone knows, oh, they teach the music, but it's obviously so much more than that. So if there was yeah. a dictionary definition of it, what would it be? Well, I, I mean, I think, yeah, it depends. But the music director, you know, the music director generally is the one who is helping to interpret the music, right? So it, not just conducting the music, not just teaching the music, but making the music actually happen, make, making sure that the, the singers are singing what they're supposed to sing, sometimes being arranging that music, sometimes not. You know, I mean, that's where I, where I kind of draw the line. Sometimes even it, at its base, a music director is conducting, teaching, and maintaining a show, right? And making sure that it's sounding as great as it did from the, the from the beginning. When, when that music director is an arranger as well, so like I often am, they're creating vocal arrangements or they're creating dance arrangements or they're creating incidental arrangements that underscoring in scenes and scene change music, et cetera, et cetera, that then continue to further flesh out and, and enhance the author's vision. So I, I feel like there are very various degrees of what the what a music director does, but the music director is the one that's making the music happen. They're only what, what what I think is fascinating is music directors and stage managers are really the only ones that are like come into contact with just about every department right at all times. So the music director not only has to deal with the musicians and the actors, but also the the crew and the sound people and the and all the technical aspects of the, of the show and the stage managers and, and the stage manager without the stage manager and the music director, the show doesn't happen. Right. They say go and we go and that's it. And we get see you at the end. So, uh, so yeah, so I, I feel like, I feel like there are, there are various, uh, you know, degrees of, of what a music director does, but in general, it really is about helping to, not just interpret, but help, helping to interpret and realize a composer's vision for a piece. When you're arranging or orchestrating, what's your process? Like, how, how does that work? I don't, you know, I think everyone knows writers sit down, they yeah. start tapping away, or even a composer starts playing away. Mm -hmm. What do you do when you have sheet music or lead or whatever it is you do have? I, I'm actually talk about that. Yeah. I'm sure different composers give you different Correct. things. Correct. So tell me the extremes of what you've gotten to work with from composers. Yeah, well, I mean like gotten things, you know, like fully written out piano vocals from Stephen Schwartz or Bobby and Kristen Lopez and things like that, or a demo, you know, a, a full demo from Cindy Lauper, you know, or Dolly Parton. They're not handwriting anything down. They're saying, here's the song. Here's what I think the song is. Now take it and, and, and go with it. And will you talk about those? Those are great examples. Mm -hmm. So when Stephen Schwartz gives you something, mm -hmm. what's your process with that compared to when Dolly Parton gives you something that she's done in her studio? Yeah, it's, it, well, it, it's different. I mean, I think that it also depends on the piece, but for instance, Stephen and Stephen and I, you know, have, have such a shorthand after all these years. But it really is, in many cases, with Stephen Schwartz, it wasn't about 
blowing up a song and turning it into something that it's not. In many cases, it was, let's put some vocals on this. Let's do this. And if I had ideas, I would throw it back to him and say, what about this? What about this? And we kind of batted it back and forth about, you know, little things. So for instance, on Wicked, when it came to vocal arrangements and things like that, there are many things that we did together. There's many things that that I got to like just kind of go to town with, and sometimes he loved it, and sometimes he'd be like, mm, "He might not change a couple of these notes." And, but that was a really uh, a really fun educational process. And then obviously with with someone like Dolly Parton, who's never written a show before, but has written so many amazing songs. Like she she really trusted us and with me and with Joe Mantello and Bob Greenblatt, just about how we were going to treat her material and how we were going to kind of realize it. And we were able to, with 9 to 5, kind of blow the songs up and still stay within the world of Dolly and make it a little bit more pop and a little bit more theatrical, but still maintain her original vision of what the songs were. But I got to like really expand on bridges and write big endings and you know modulations and all this stuff to kind of make the songs more theatrical and interesting for the piece. Can you tell when a song, when you get a song delivered like that, can you tell like, ooh, this is a good one? Yeah. You, is it, is it of course. You got, so what makes a great song when you I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, look, that's so subjective, but I think that to go back to what your question was before about how it all starts with these things, it's like generally, as you know, like when we're developing these shows, the first thing that we do is sit down and read the script and score, right? And sing through the songs and all that stuff. So the first layer of before orchestration, before anything are vocals, right? So if there's the vocal arrangement, which is one of the things that I love to do and I've gotten to do on every show that I've done. I, I don't know exactly what would be the the most telling thing, but I, I, I can I know if a song kind of if a song is well written and, and it gets me. I mean, you know, when you have a writer like Stephen Schwartz, I mean, the guy who wrote Godspell the year I was born, and the fact that he was asking my opinion on things was mind blowing to me. So this is someone who's instantly can write a character and what the character is going through in a plot. And you can, you feel it. Like I felt it in those are very early versions of the wicked songs. These are, these songs are amazing. It's also, if they're tuneful, like with the Dolly stuff, how I was able to take it and, and kind of like blow it up to a larger ensemble singing those songs, you know, and kind of skip it in that kind of gospel country world. It just musically, it was so, it wasn't like I had to do a lot of reharm or anything, reharmonization. I got to like stick with the chords and stuff that they, that she did and then just kind of blow it up. And Cindy's stuff was the same way for, for Kiki with Cindy Lauper. It's just like, you know, she, she would slave over these demos and, you know, and be like, this is the sound that I want. Cause she's also an amazing arranger. So she had very specific ideas about how she wanted the music to sound. And my favorite story was that she handed me for What a Woman Wants, which is opens Act 2 of Kinky Beats, she handed me, walked into rehearsal one day and handed me a box set of CDs. And I said, what's this? She goes, it's Piazzolla. Do you know who he is? I said, you mean the father of Argentine tango? Yes, I do know who Piazzolla is. How the fuck do you know who, who Piazzolla is? And she's like, well, I want it to sound like this. I want it to sound like authentic tango, but leave the electronic drums. And I did, you know what I mean? And it was just amazing. I was like, that is, it was so inspiring. I knew that there was something special in the way she made music and learning how to, how she made music and finding our balance 
And that's, I think, the fun part for me is getting to work with all these very different composers uh, that come from all walks of life and all versions of the of the business and getting to learn how key into how they make music. Because if I can't key into that, then I can't make their sound happen. And I'm a big believer that, look, there's lots of people with lots of talent in the world, but what makes people an ex- a big success like you are is also the ability to be a diplomat. Mm. Uh, so when Cindy Lauper, Stephen Schwartz, Bobby Lopez, these icons in the mm. business do something that you don't think is quite right, how do you s- tell them, you know what? This isn't so good. I'm well, sure it's come up. I'm sure they've yeah, all written. Contracts. Of course, and we and I've had knockdown dragouts with all of those people. That really? You yeah. I mean, of course. I mean, not. I wouldn't say knockdown. Give me an example of a fight. Uh, well, like I, over a tune or something. Cindy and I came to very very strong words where I stormed out of a room. You're when so we were, nice. You do a storm we were, out when we were recording Kinky the Kinky Boots. We were, we were actually recording the album of all things. And we got to everybody say, yeah. And she was in the booth and we were recording and, and she, and she had a problem with the horns and stuff that, that I had written and about one specific spot of, uh, of the song and she kept harping on it and was really, really upset about it. And I, and then by the way, by the time we're recording it, the show's done, right? I mean, the show's done. And hit, it's like, yeah, it, it was already a hit. It's like, you know, uh, we hadn't won our, our, our awards yet, but, but the, the whole point was, you know, she, she was like, she, she was going on and on about it. And I finally, I, I said some very strong, very, very curse words to her about this thing that she was harping on. And I stormed out and she came and found me and she said, and, you know, and she immediately was like, I'm sorry, you've worked your ass off and this all sounds so amazing. And you're right. You know what I mean? Like it was like, and it wasn't, you know, and there have been plenty of times where I wasn't right, where I've pushed back on things. You know, I think back to Avenue Q when we first developed Avenue Q at the O'Neill and like, it was just, it was so intense. And so, you know, for all of us and, and, you know, we were so young. Higher stakes when you're just starting out. Everything is yeah, like and, death. Yeah. Death. And it's, but I, I will assert my opinion about something if it's in the world of, of that, of that collaboration. But I, it's not about me. It's about the piece. We're all in the service of creating something special and everyone's working their asses off to make that happen. At, at a certain point, all you can do is kind of, throw everything into the pot and see what sticks or up against the wall and see what sticks, I guess is the better metaphor. Right. And I, I love that process. It's like in figuring out the puzzle pieces and where it all goes and, and creating something new um, is always so, so magical. So I think that in the long run, it's just the less ego that's involved in that process. I'm not saying there, there shouldn't be opinions, but it's it's not about making myself look good. It's about making this piece the best piece it can be. You mentioned Mac drives and floppy disks and all that when you were first starting out. Obviously, you took a lot of changes yeah. in your niche in this industry. How do you feel about technology in I mean, pits nowadays? I, I love it. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm not... I'm not so fancy. I, I don't, you know, conduct Frozen with like a Bluetooth 
pedal, you know, on an iPad or anything. No, no offense to all those amazing musicians on Broadway that are doing that, and and I, I, I marvel at it. I think it's fantastic. I mean, I think that you know, I mean, I totally embrace all the technology in, involved in because I learned at the beginning of all that technology, like in the early '90s. I started on on Apple computers, like way back then. As far as music sequencing and recording and notation, I, I, I was just doing a gig with my friend Rory O'Malley out in San Francisco, and I had some work to do um, on a project. And I brought you know my little travel keyboard, and I was and I, my flight was delayed five hours, so I'm sitting on I'm sitting in a, in an airport lounge making music. It's amazing. I can do that from wherever. It's incredible what we can do nowadays. And one of the stories was actually with, with, with Lady Gaga was like when I went out to do the Oscars for with her the second time, we did a rehearsal. They flew me. I was on vacation for my birthday and they called me at the last minute. Would you come do the Oscars? I'm like, yes. So I flew, I flew to meet her and we did a rehearsal with the orchestra of just the strings for Till It Happened to You song. And we rehearsed with, with the orchestra and she was like, that's really beautiful. She's like, Stephen, wouldn't it be great to like have the whole orchestra play it? And I said, yeah, that's great. She's like, okay, should we call them back in? I said, no, 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 I got to write charts. I got to write charts. She's like, okay, well, let's do that for like the next rehearsal. I said, okay, great. Which was two days later. And then the Oscars were, it was like the next day. So I had to fly home to get my tux and to unpack my stuff. Cause I had like, I was, I came from like Mexico with like flip flops. And then I flew the next day, literally the next day, to get to a rehearsal that night. And I finished scoring that song for the entire Oscar orchestra, which I, I had to write all the woodwinds, the brass, and the percussion, and everything other than the strings. And I literally sent it from the plane to the copyists, and who were printing it up as we walked into the rehearsal. And that... Stuff doesn't happen without technology. It's amazing. It's also spoiled us in a lot of ways. You know, it's like, I mean, I always have a pencil and score paper at my disposal, but there have been whole shows that I've put up where, where we've had a music assistant that sat there and transcribed something that I've just played and it immediately gets into, into the computer. We're just, it's it, just like everything else. We're so used to that instant gratification of the digital world, and it's happening faster and faster. Do you worry about it taking over live music at all? I know that's really not concerned. not live music. I think the thing is, you know, Broadway is always going to have live music. It is a live medium. It's about that. I do think that different shows have different needs as far as that goes. Uh, you know, while some shows would require a much larger orchestra and more is always better. It varies. So, so I, I, I don't worry about it. I embrace the technology. I don't think that they should be playing recorded music that we're playing along to. Any, any, any any times that I've used that technology on kinky boots, we've done, we did like the unplayable stuff that the, the, the dance in the dance music and like the crazy filter sweeps or the, the stuff they do it in Hamilton all, you know, as well, you know, Alex used it uh, in a lot of cases, it's stuff that makes it feel a little bit more produced and more electronic, but all of the main playing is done by the live musicians. And that's what makes it magic. Yeah, that's the way it should be. Okay. Absolutely. My last question, which is my genie question. Okay. I want you to imagine the genie from Aladdin comes okay. to visit you. Is it, my, is it played by Michael J. Scott? It definitely uh, is. Okay, definitely good, because I really love him. So 
the genie grants you one wish. What's the one thing that makes you so angry about Broadway, that frustrates you, that gets you so worked up that you'd storm out of this room right now if the issue was on the table, that you'd ask this genie to wish away in an instant? Ooh. I mean, I guess, you know, I don't want to piss off a lot of people or make makes anyone angry about this, but but I would say... The one thing that I would change in the whole scheme of things is the 50% rule for the musicians. So just tell everyone what that is. So there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a rule from Local 802, which is the, the Musicians Union, um, uh, has a rule that has been in place since the 1950s that enables the musicians to not be at their job 50% of the time. It's... You know, attendance is taken quarterly, everything. I mean, it's it's well-maintained, and if it's maintained, you know, well, and you have great musicians that get great subs, it, it's it's never really a major problem. But it's it's interesting. I, I'm not saying that musicians should get time off or that musicians shouldn't be able to go do other things. I just feel like it's one of those things that in the past has been very frustrating as you're putting up a show and as you're opening a show. And then all the subs start to come in because you want people to be able to have people to cover them in case they can't be there and whatnot. But it is a very strange thing that of all of the different unions and different people that get to do this, that there's a group of people that get to show up half the time. Again, as a member of that union, and it doesn't really apply to me because I'm generally the music director. I would say that I love the idea of and, and you know of, of giving people time off and taking leaves of absence and all that stuff. I do it all the time for the, for the musicians that I have on tour and whatnot. But it really is it, it, it is interesting. I mean, I feel like maybe one day it will get looked at. The reason that it was all that was that it was in place in the first place was because when TV was still in New York and shows had house orchestras. They wanted all the best players. So in order to allow them to play the shows and the TV shows, they're like, well, we gotta, you know, not let them play the shows all the time. And, you know, listen, I, 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 like, like I said, when, when, when the shows are well maintained and the musicians are super conscientious and all of the people that I work with are and rarely had major problems, I just find it very interesting and very, very challenging to put so much love and work into creating something that then becomes, in a worst case scenario, a part-time job. And it rarely does, but it would be nice to to at least have, to, to know that, that the people that you really, really want to be playing that show are always playing that show or playing it most of the time. Yeah, it's one of those old archaic rules that was established for a lot of reasons that those of us, frankly, in the industry right now in leadership positions don't remember, don't even think about. I mean, you know that history most people don't. It's just one of those things that just hasn't changed. Maybe someday it will. Yeah, I mean, and and it's not it's not a thing that, 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 is, that is frustrating or, I mean, it can be frustrating, but it's not like a game changer for me. I just feel like it's something that maybe one day it's always pushed to the bottom as far as, as, as things that are discussed. I feel like so many things that are discussed for so many of the different shows by all the unions, the issues become bigger and bigger and bigger and we lose sight of what we're really talking about, which is an individual show's needs. The larger wish of all of this is that 
I know I only get one wish, is that, that when when all of those warring factions or negotiating factions come together, that they really understand what each individual show actually needs. You know, and it's good to have checks on that because sometimes there are producers and writers and creators of shows that will try to get away with things that they shouldn't be getting away with. But it's uh, there's a real fine line there. I agree. Well said. Uh, and I love that answer. You're right. It always gets pushed to the bottom because there's no money at stake in it. Correct. But what I love about your answer is just all about the art and just making sure we have the best show possible. Absolutely. So thank you for that. Thanks for joining us. And we will see you all next time for episode 181. Start your binge listening now. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.